What is going on, one week season fam? JM to win here, Friday evening, week seven, time for the Angles podcast. What a wild week we have in the NFL with shootouts everywhere and injuries everywhere and schedule changes everywhere. I actually really like this week a lot. I feel like I have a a strong feel for it. So I'm excited to get into this podcast and then put together the player grid tonight. My pool is pretty much put together. So it's just pulling the information and doing the write-ups and making sure there's nothing that I'm overlooking. I actually expected to have the player grid done by the time I was recording the podcast this week. Because for the first time since the start of the season, I don't have a a crazy 90-hour work week. But I don't know if any of you have ever gone through a stretch like that where you have three, three plus months of just nonstop work. But coming out of it, you think optimistically that you're just going to have a lot of time that first week. But what really happens is you just work really slowly that first week. So I still filled up like my normal amount of time this week with two-thirds of my normal amount of work and am therefore getting up late week stuff uh, at the same pace and schedule as has been the case. But uh, So no early player grid this week, but it'll be up Saturday morning. If you are listening to this on Saturday morning, it's probably already up. In fact, you're probably reading it as you listen to this podcast. Side note there, the uh, Angles podcast and the player grid have started to work together really well. I really like the way that uh, now that I'm thinking more about how to tie everything together, uh, the way that these two pieces on the site kind of balance each other has been really cool to see. And with that being said, I think that some of the stuff that we're doing in the Angles podcast is really valuable as far as hitting on the bottom-up build, hitting on some strategy elements as we go through the bottom-up build, talking about some unique angles on the slate. And then as we did last week, As I go through the bottom-up build, I'm able to kind of talk through the pieces that I like in the slate on other spots and how I'm seeing the slate, and then the player grid comes out and ties that all together. I say all that because uh, Scott Barrett was talking to me this week about he and I potentially doing a Friday night podcast, and similar to the the two-man show that Levitan and I had uh, for, I think we had the two-man show for a couple years after... um, it dropped down from three of us with Hefe. And I, I really like the idea of having another two-man late-week pod where we kind of go more position by position and talk about the slate the way that Adam and I used to. But I also don't want to cut out the Angles podcast. I think that it's pretty valuable and unique. And obviously everything that we do on the site is aimed toward being valuable and unique. So Go ahead, if you have any thoughts, share them with us, no rush, whenever, share them on, on Twitter at One Week Season, or pop us an email from the email us button on your profile. Uh, Aaron will be able to collect those, Dustin will be able to collect those, and we'll be able to get a sense of what you guys are thinking, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know what the solution is, but it's something that Scott and I talked about maybe doing this year. What we'll probably do is just like a couple bonus late week podcasts that aren't official or or on the schedule necessarily as a recurring thing. But uh, I'd like to try to figure out something for next year, and it's mo- it mostly comes down to schedule. So 
if we're able to find a, a way to lighten up one or two things in other areas for me, then I, I would probably have time to do two late week podcasts. The other question there is if you think that two late week podcasts is a bit redundant. Obviously, we would cover things very differently in the two podcasts, but we'd be covering uh, a lot of the same thoughts. Um, and then obviously with a two-man podcast, we'd get Scott's thoughts and we'd have that value of those late week thoughts of somebody who's as deep into the research as anyone out there. So yeah, pop in your thoughts and um, the nature of asking for your thoughts is that different people have different opinions. So we won't necessarily go with what you say you'd like, but this will give us a better sense of what our community thinks and what we can do to continue providing you with the best product we can provide you with. With that, we're going to get to the bottom up build. <laughs> we could have left, we could have left 10K in salary uh, on this week's bottom up build. Uh, we ended up leaving 7,100, and as you'll see, that allowed us to actually pay up in a few spots. Enormous amounts of value have opened up this week, and there might be even more. Uh, we're not sure. As of Friday evening on Aaron Jones, Aaron Jones did not practice on Friday and was added to the injury report after not being injured throughout the week. He pulled a muscle in his calf. So if he's out, he's a game time decision this week. If Aaron Jones is out, then Jamal Williams will be stepping into probably about a 70% role. We've watched Jamal Williams enough to know that he's not some explosive piece in the mold of Aaron Jones. The thing about the Aaron Jones play is, as we saw earlier this year, week two, he can hit for 40 plus. He can hit for 50 points because he just has so much explosiveness and big play upside from anywhere on the field. Excuse Eden's complaining as she tries to climb onto my lap. Uh, whereas Jamal Williams, he's going to have the workload, but not not quite that explosive upside. Still, though, the matchup is tremendous against the Texans. They've given up the most rushing yards to running backs in the league. Jamal Williams will have a pass game role. He'll have a goal line role. So that could be additional value that opens up. For now, we'll assume that Aaron Jones is playing, or we'll assume at least that we won't have information on that until Sunday. And so we will go through our bottom-up build with the players in hand. But that's another spot to keep in mind. Just lots of value this week, lots of upside this week. This also opens up some really unique angles because things seem so obvious and straightforward to the field. Uh, that means that not only will ownership congregate in certain spots, but as Hilo talks about uh, often, that also means that the type of build that we'll see will be very similar across the board. So if you listened to the DFS recap pod this week, which if you haven't listened to it, it's in the DFS recap pod uh, page in the Edge Plus drop-down menu. It's also at the top of the NFL Edge. That's the DFS recap pod with myself and Scott Barrett and Graham Barfield from fantasypoints.com. But in that, we were talking about a lot of the strategy elements in DFS and I brought up a couple weeks ago where the chalk bill, just nobody was double pay up at wide receiver. And so Cubs fan went with several Ridley, DeAndre Hopkins rosters. I noticed that Cal Spears, who owns Roto Grinders and again is one of the sharpest DFS players. And he's the one I heard, you know, define DFS so perfectly by saying it's, it's like this new puzzle you get to put together each week. Uh, Cal had a number of Ridley and, and Hopkins double pay up at wide receiver rosters that week. I had 
three or four of my, I think it was three or four out of 19 that week, or maybe I played 12 rosters that week, three of 12 rosters that week with Hopkins and Ridley. And it's just thinking, how do I take good players while building differently from the field? So people tend to think of, we talk about it a lot. This is kind of in the first, one of the first things we talked about on OWS, and obviously we'd been talking about it before that, but in that first course that we posted, which is not obsolete, by the way, if you've never read it, it's in the, let me double check this, but it's in the DFS 201 drop down menu. And it's all the way down at the bottom playing NFL DFS for profit. It's an eight part course that we made part of the, the subscription in year one. So anyhow, in that course, we talked about the, the fact that people often just try to be contrarian by taking bad plays and there are better ways to be contrarian. And that's what we're always looking for. We want to start out. It's why we do all the research, why we have the NFL edge. It's why after researching and writing the NFL edge, I go back through and read the NFL edge and then make all my notes from the NFL edge and condense my player pool in that way without really weighing pricing too heavily is because the first thing you want to know is who the good plays are on the slate. And then, and then you want to know who beyond those good plays could actually get you like 30 plus points. And then you want to start thinking about salary and how to put things together and what you're able to see when doing things that way, when you already have a pool of players that you like, is you can start finding the spots where it's like, okay, here's a good play that nobody's on, as opposed to just trying to pivot off of a chalky play. You can build not thinking about what others are doing. I've shared this Peter Thiel quote before, but he said, this is paraphrasing, but the best way to be contrarian is to think for yourself. So it's not that we're necessarily thinking about being contrarian. It's that we're saying, okay, here are the chalk plays or here are the chalk builds. Now let me build something that I like that's just different. And people can get kind of hung up on thinking like projections. And they think, well, this guy who's chalky is... 4,600, I'm choosing that price because I don't think there's a chalky player that's had exactly that price this week. This guy is chalky at 4,600. And so I have to make sure that I get, like if this guy gets 22 points for everybody, I have to make sure that I get 22 points from whoever I go to in this price range. But that's not really true. What's true is that you just need your roster to score more than others. And so you might not even have a player in that price range or you might end up on a player in that price range but not because you're specifically pivoting off the chalky guy. Like, let's say this week Brandon Cooks is 5,200, and let's say we were talking about a 46, a chalky 4,600 wide receiver. Well, you might be on Brandon Cooks because you're, you've decided to build a Packers-Texans game stack, and that doesn't, that doesn't leave a space on your roster for this 4,600 guy because maybe the salary doesn't work out that way. And, and now Cooks is... Technically, you're pivot in this price range off this 4,600 guy, but you don't need, it's not like, well, if Cooks doesn't score more than this guy, I lose. It's like, no, I'm, I'm not even building with this guy in mind. I'm building with this 200 plus point threshold in mind. And however my team works together to get me there is how my team works together to get me there. And so again, just thinking about different ways to build ways that are different from how the field will build con contrarian roster constructions that are still sharp. So uh, with all of the chalk this week and all of the cheap chalk this week, it does open some really unique angles of just different ways to play the slate. So we're going to get to that at the uh, end of this as well after we hit on the bottom of the build. But 
let's go ahead and dive into the bottom-up build. As with last week, this isn't going to be... So I guess we always give the quick background for any new listeners. In fact, OWS Free is listening to the Angles Pod this week. Welcome to the Angles Pod. Um, So if you're new to OWS Free, new to the Angles Podcast, the bottom-up build, the thought is generally in DFS... Uh, especially novice players, casual players, will start from the top and build down. So they find the super studs that they want to play, and then they find the value that they can stomach. And that ends up leaving them with the super studs, but without the overall scoring that they need, without that 200-point upside that they need on their rosters. Now, on a week like this, that wouldn't really be much of a problem. There's so much good value that you could start from the top down and still end up with a really good team. But a lot of weeks, what DFS players end up doing is taking really thin plays at the bottom and just hoping that those plays pay off in order to fit these studs at the top. But if you study rosters at the tops of tournaments, you start to realize that you really can't afford to take these eight-point games, these seven-point games, these 12-point games from these cheap guys who you're saying, well, if they get me 3.5x or 4x salary, it keeps me on a 200-point pace. Sure, but you know, then you also need your 8K guy to get you 32 points. You need your 7K guy to get you 28 to 30. You need everybody to perform at their optimal level because these cheap guys are just getting you kind of value points. So we like to start from the bottom up in order to find the plays that that you could feel really good about heading into the roster, heading into the weekend, having on your roster. After I go through the bottom up process, I like to also go top down because what I'm ultimately looking for is players who, when you drop below that player, it it shifts. The available players shift. So you kind of drop into a different tier as soon as you drop below a particular player in pricing. And that tends to be kind of the player who's a little bit more underpriced than all the players around him. So we'll see an example of that on, on this bottom up build to where we're not necessarily taking just the cheapest guys. Again, we could have left 10K plus in salary this week, but we're taking the guys who are the best values kind of across the board. And this angle allows us to play around with some places where we're not just taking the cheapest guy, but we're able to kind of hunt for those uh, underpriced plays as well. So last note here is that in the past, we've just gone strict, strict value, but starting last week, Uh, we started tying some game theory elements into this bottom-up build so that we can also discuss what that looks like, what roster construction looks like. So I'm going to have two versions of this bottom-up build. I'll pop them both in the player grid, but one is essentially my straight bottom-up build, like what's the sharpest value on this slate that I'm seeing. And then the other one is this game theory bottom-up build as if we actually had so this week um i've left 7100 in salary so that would be as if as if we actually had only 42.9k in salary cap how would i build if that were the case if there were if if there were a tournament a special tournament or if DraftKings changed the rules this week to say hey pricing's the same but you can only spend 42.9k not just what's the best value, what are the optimal plays, but how would I maybe put together my roster to give myself a shot at first place, thinking through game theory, thinking through correlations, etc. So with that, let's dive in. And the first, the first pieces, we're going to knock out actually four pieces at once in a single game. 
Interestingly, these pieces would have been on the bottom-up build, whether we were doing a game theory build or a standard straight bottom-up build. So you'll see these players on both versions of the bottom-up build in the player grid. But that is the it, is, it all comes from this Bengals and Browns game. And we'll start out on the Bengals side, where uh, I'll hit on Burrow again in the angles. But with all of the available salary this week and with Russell Wilson and Kyler Murray playing each other and Josh Allen playing the Jets who he put up over 30 against already and Patrick Mahomes likely going overlooked against Denver not that he shouldn't go overlooked compared to the spots these other guys are in Patrick Mahomes is the underdog to these guys this week Uh, not all of them actually but to most of them um, these higher priced guys but he's still Patrick Mahomes he still has his weapons. He can still pop for the highest score on the slate. He'll still prob- probably grab about 5 6% ownership because he always does. We have Aaron Rodgers and Deshaun Watson against each other up here. And that's even before we get to Matt Ryan and Matthew Stafford as, you know, kind of a priced tier below. So DraftKings is good with pricing. DraftKings is sharp with pricing. So when you see the highest priced quarterbacks playing each other, when you see Russ and Kyler are the four, you know, first and fourth highest priced quarterbacks, and they're playing each other. Rodgers and Watson are fifth and sixth, and they're playing each other. Matt Ryan is seventh. Stafford is tenth, and they're playing each other. DraftKings is already pricing these guys well. In other words, if, if DraftKings is giving a high price tag to a player, that's probably an appropriate price tag for that player to have. And then add in the fact that these players are playing each other and think about the way that NFL dynamics work, how a game works. It just sets up a lot of opportunities for some shootouts to develop. In other words, these are good quarterbacks playing against each other, good quarterbacks with high production expectations playing against each other. And that plays well off of each other. So if Russell Wilson's doing really well, Kyler has to do well to keep his team in the game. If if Aaron Rodgers is having a huge game through the air. Also, Aaron Jones being out elevates the chances of the Packers leaning a little bit more pass heavy. We know that the Texans, as we explored in the NFL Edge this week, also have been leaning pass heavy this year, top three in early down pass play rate with the score within seven points. So if Rodgers is hitting big plays, then you've got Deshaun Watson coming back, trying to hit big plays. So again, these are all really good plays up at the top. People also have a lot of salary available. So if we're going to go different at quarterback, if we're going to go unique at quarterback, we have to do so in a way that gains us a tangible edge. And I don't just mean via ownership. I mean via the, it has to be a low owned guy, but also it has to be a guy who can score either priced next to those high priced guys and can outscore all of them or priced quite a bit below those high-priced guys and has a shot to outscore all of them. So Joe Burrow is probably not outscoring all of the high-priced quarterbacks. Um, there are going to be There's going to be somebody from that high-priced list who puts up 33-plus points, whether it's Rodgers or Allen or Kyler or Watson, whoever it ends up being. Burrow probably doesn't get there, but Burrow did post 28.5 points. 
the last time the Bengals played the Browns. And at 5,500, if you could get your 28.5 points, if you could get north of 5x, and all of these high-priced quarterbacks are hitting 4x and 4.5x, and some of them hit 3.5x because they disappoint, then Burrow actually gains you a tangible edge. So you're rostering Burrow basically saying, can he get me about 27.5 to 28 points? So what did it take for him to get there last time against the Browns? It took 316 passing yards, three touchdowns, and 19 rushing yards. So we should note, first off, that Burrow has thrown for 300 plus in four of six games. We should also note that the rushing is real. He has rushing totals of 46, 19, negative 1, 11, 10, and 2. He is going to take off a little bit. He has two rushing touchdowns on the year. Neither came in that game against the Browns. Uh, Joe Mixon's out, so that increases the chances of Burrow throwing. Gio Bernard is now going to be the lead back. We know that he's primarily uh, or he's best used as a pass catching back as opposed to between the tackles guy. We know that the Browns are tougher to attack on the ground than through the air. We know that the Browns have a good team. They should be scoring points. So a lot of things line up well here for Burrow to be throwing the ball and for Burrow to be part of the touchdown scoring, whether it's passes or running it in himself. Now, the big thing to note here is that he threw the ball 61 times in that game against Cleveland. We've talked recently about how the Browns are one of the zone-heaviest teams in the NFL. The idea behind being an ultra-zone-heavy team is that you keep everything in front of you, and so you force the opponent to throw shorter. Also, you force the wide receivers to settle into an open space in the zone, which gets them catching the ball standing still or not running full speed. So if you're in man coverage, it's one of the reasons why uh, a player like Chase Claypool, we talked about this, that's why we talked about the Browns last week. Claypool still set up well last week, and I used him on four of my 19 rosters, but he didn't set up as well for an explosion game as he did against the man-heavy Eagles because Claypool is a good route runner, he's speedy, and against man coverage, if he shakes a guy and then he's running downfield or diagonally across the field and he catches the ball in stride, there's so much opportunity for big plays. If you're settling in a zone and catching it and then having to turn and run, it takes a lot more you know, missed tackles and bad things happening for the defense for that to turn into a big play. So last time Burrow threw 61 times and only 316 yards. That's not actually a good average. That was 5.2 yards per pass attempt. But that was also his second career game. So uh, since then, he's thrown for 7.1 against the man-heavy Philly defense, 8.3 against the zone-leaning Jaguar, 6.1 against the man-heavy Ravens, and 8 against the zone-heavy Colts. Uh, calling the Colts strictly zone-heavy is a, a little bit misleading because they have some man-zone concepts that they run. But um, but yeah, so Burrow sets up well in this spot. He's not some smash play, but point totals this year, DraftKings scoring of 17.3, against Baltimore, and then 20.7. So outside of Baltimore, his worst game was 17.3 points against a really good zone-heavy Chargers defense. In his first career game, without 
T. Higgins involved in the offense and with the Bengals trying to hammer passes to A.J. Green at that point. So, yeah, there's just uh, there's a lot to like about Burrow. I would have priced him at 61, 6,200. So at 5,500, he does provide edge. If Burrow were going to be popular this week, then he'd be the type of place where I'd say, well, the edge isn't that huge. Like his chances of of topping these high-priced guys isn't that big. And the salary multiplier edge gained isn't huge for whatever risk you take on. But if Burrow's going to be low-owned, which currently looks like he will be, then then that makes him a lot more valuable. Because if he does get that 5x and people just aren't on him and everybody else is on a 4x or 4.5x quarterback, that gains you an immediate edge. If Burrow surprises and puts up 33 points, which he could do, let's say he runs one in and throws for three touchdowns and 300 yards. If Burrow does that, then he's you know obviously putting you way ahead of the field because you're saving 1,600 in salary against somebody like Kyler Murray and getting a higher score. And you're getting a guy, you know, a score that other people aren't getting. And then obviously that opens up unique roster construction as well, because you almost have to start figuring out where to spend this salary this week. So Joe Burrow is the quarterback on this build. I mentioned T Higgins already. I've mentioned T Higgins since week three. In fact, around week three or four, Four was when I was saying that Higgins will be priced in the low 6K range uh, as we move through the season. At that point, he was 3,900. Then he moved up to 4,500, 4,500, 4,700. Now he's 5,300. Uh, I like to peg those salary marks because 5,300, when a player's price starts going up, we need to know if they are overpriced or if they're still underpriced. I always go back to that example of Odell Beckham, his rookie year. And you have to remember back then, the whole story before that rookie class with Mike Evans and um, and Odell Beckham and whoever else was in that. There was like five wide receivers in that class. Uh, but before that year, I think Devontae Adams was in that class as well. He was. He didn't emerge until um, years two and three. Anyhow, uh, heading into that year, it was known that rookie wide receivers just don't perform at a high level in the NFL. Um, That has changed as the college game has changed, as the way these guys are being developed has changed, as the NFL game has changed. But back then, rookie wide receivers rarely produced at a high level in fantasy. Odell Beckham was a first-round pick and went undrafted in season-long his rookie year. I picked him up in... uh, uh, in fact, a league that's like pretty OWS heavy. Josh Morano was in the league. Morano reads the uh, is one of the two guys who reads the NFL Edge audio. Corey was in that league. Corey, who uh, does the betting slant for OWS. Uh, Jay, who did the production on video stuff in year one, was in that league as well. Anyhow, uh, I picked up Odell Beckham in that league week one or, you know, right before week one kicked off or week two. And he missed the first couple games of the season. And, you know, like like I said, undrafted in season long. People just weren't thinking about him. And I think his price started at around 4500 And, you know, once he started hitting some big games and he got up into that 6K price range, people started getting scared of paying that price tag for him. But by the end of the season... He was up over 7K. That same year, I remember writing, the, this is the last time you'll, I think Mike Evans was 5,600. And I remember writing, this is the last time you'll be able to get Mike Evans at this low of a price for years. I'm not quite there with 
T. Higgins. I mean, I think 5,300, you're probably not going to see him down here for a while. But um, it's not like he's some guy who we expect to shoot up to 7K. If he gets up to 7K, he's a little bit overpriced for his role right now. But he should be in the low 6Ks. He has a downfield role. He has target counts. Uh, In his last four games of 9, 7, 8, and 8, he has two carries in that stretch. He has two touchdowns on the year. He has had opportunities for more touchdowns, lots of schemed usage, again, downfield work, um, and explosive upside. So T. Higgins is somebody who I like in this spot. 5,300, still underpriced, still belongs on the bottom-up build. On this same team, Giovanni Bernard. Actually, before we get to Gio, uh, I'll note real quickly that A.J. Green at 4,300 also could go on the bottom-up build in place of Higgins or in place of Gio. Um, In fact, let's tie all that in together. So this is via Lex Moralia's research in the NFL Edge in Gio's last four games without Mixon. These are his DraftKings point totals. 19, 14.3, 19.6, and 25.6. Now, if you get 25.6 for 4,500, you're flying high. If you get 19 for 4,500, you're in great shape. 19 for 4,500. 4,500 is typically reserved for, uh, in fact, these are things we try to talk about, right? So eventually you start picking up this stuff on your own. This is stuff that's important to pay attention to, but we try to always cover it um, in spaces like this as far as like, how does DFS work? What are the mechanics of DFS? So 4,500 on DraftKings is typically reserved for split carry running backs, running backs who only really play on third downs, uh, short area slot receivers, possession receivers, and then receivers who see limited targets, but see those targets downfield. So they're more hit or miss. So your Marquez Valdez Scantling, he's 4,100 this week because he hasn't hit in a while. Once he hits, he'll bump up to like 4,900. If he hits a couple times, he'll go up to like 5,300. But that's, you know, the Deshaun Jackson type player, the Marquez Valdez Scantling type player. This is the range we typically see them priced in. If Crowder hadn't had that run of 100-yard games, this is typically the range where a Crowder is going to be priced. We see that now without Brady, this is where Edelman has dropped down to. So if you're taking one of these Adam Humphreys guys, right, these Cole Beasley guys, those 4,500 type guys, a really good game from them is about 14 points. Like Cole Beasley's going to hit between like, I think it's 8 and 15 that he's hit for, uh, I think it was Lex noted this, or maybe it was Hilo noted this in his write-up, that basically Beasley's hit for 8 to 15 points for forever, but hasn't topped 15 points. Or you're taking like the MVS guy who can get you 20, can get you 25. Rugs typically belongs down here as well. They can get you 20, 25 because one or two big catches gets you there. But if they miss, they're getting you seven, eight points. Point being, Geo shouldn't be compared just to running back scores, right? Like you want 30 plus points, but also compared to what you can get elsewhere with his salary. So Geo. 19 points at 4,500, awesome. 14 points as his worst game at 4,500, awesome. 
that's like the ceiling on those slot receivers unless they get like a fluky multi-touchdown game. Uh, 19.6, 25.6. So the, the point is Geo's floor games in this role are like the ceiling games for those slot receiver guys. And his ceiling games in this role are like the ceiling games for those downfield guys. So at 4,500, Geo is just a really rock solid play. And if he gets you 14 points, that's not what you need, but you actually really shouldn't be that disappointed in your decision, right? From like a process standpoint, because what you're saying is in this price range, Geo having this 14 to 25 point range is is very valuable. Anyhow, uh, that kind of actually covers Geo, but back over to AJ Green, the targets will probably be there. It's such an interesting thing how he was used so heavily at the start of the year. We covered it after week two, massive downfield work, and then they just kind of stopped using him. It was like the effort wasn't there, and he doesn't look good. He's got you know lowest separation per route run among all qualified wide receivers in the NFL this year. But what the basically what the Bengals started doing last week was saying, okay, we now recognize that Green doesn't have the explosiveness. We're not going to use him trying to pick up chunk gains, but he still has tremendous hands. He's still an incredibly savvy uh, route runner. And, you know, playing against zone defense, it opens opportunities for him to get more usage because, uh, you know, he'll be he'll be capable of settling in the zone. And so we were talking about this in the contributor channel. And I said that I just don't see AJ Green posting a monster score against a zone heavy defense. And then Dustin pointed out, yeah, but doesn't he set up better against his zone heavy defense if he can't separate against man anyway? And so I think that that's, that's a sharp take there. And that's the point is you really can't roster AJ Green for like explosive big plays at this point anyway. So if he's against his own heavy defense where his veteran savvy will help him perform well, uh, and he still has touchdown upside, and if he's going to see targets um, at 4,300, I think he's a really sharp play as well this week. And uh, if I end up with, you know, more than say two out of 19 Burrow builds, I'll definitely have some AJ Green on those. And I might have some AJ Green elsewhere as well because I might end up with like five or six Higgins builds this week and want to hedge a little bit with AJ Green. So that gives us these three Bengals. And then we've got one last piece in this game, and that's Kareem Hunt at 6,800. So 6,800 is obviously not typically a bottom-up build piece, but Kareem Hunt is a player who I feel when we drop below him in the price range, we just get into a different group of players. So Aaron Jones is banged up. At 7,200, Derrick Henry's in a really tough matchup against Pittsburgh at 7,500. Zeke is uh, in a in a non-great matchup and really hasn't looked great himself this year and also has the situation with his offense against this Washington defense where scoring expectations just aren't ultra high. It doesn't mean that Zeke can't get there, but he doesn't project all that well at 7,800. And then we have Kamara at 7,900. Obviously, Kamara is a sharp play this week with Michael Thomas out. But we get down to Kareem Hunt at 6,800. And he's really a much better play than all the running backs around him up to Alvin Kamara. 6,800. Uh, Hunt saw 70% of the snaps and 80% of the touches 
through the first three quarters over the last two weeks. So the numbers are skewed a little bit by uh, fourth quarter issues and Hunt getting banged up. But we're basically expecting about 80% of the touches here on one of the best run offenses in football in a game that they should control against a Bengals defense that can be attacked on the ground. Hunt also obviously has a pass game role, has a red zone role, has a green zone role, has a goal line role. So any way you cut it, Hunt lines up well in this spot. I'm projecting anywhere from 19 to 24 touches, and those are high-value touches. We we go below him, and we have James Conner, who I like James Conner this week, too, and I like James Conner from an angles standpoint, from a leverage standpoint, in that I don't think a lot of people will be on him. But as we hit on in the NFL edge this week, he really, like, his chances of going for a huge game haven't been there. Like, that's not something we've seen from him. So Connor can get you those 20 to 30 points. But Hunt has a clearer shot at like a 40-point game at an Aaron Jones week two type of game. So Kareem Hunt stands out for me over Connor. And then you get down to Mike Davis in a in a really tough matchup against the New Orleans defense that's great against running backs out of the backfield, great against running backs on the ground. Uh, Chris Carson, whose workload is a little bit more iffy, Mixon, who's out, Josh Jacobs against Tampa Bay. So again, once you get below Hunt, you just get into a different range of players. So at 6,800, Hunt really stands out to me. I like him a lot. If we were going strict bottom-up build, I was a little bit low on Justin Jackson in the NFL edge, just because whenever we are expect, whenever everyone's certain that they know how the roles on a team are going to play out, and then those roles play out very differently one week. I never like to assume that those roles are also going to play out that same way the second time through, right? So like last week, the assumption was that Josh Kelly was going to be the leader in this backfield, and then Justin Jackson was the leader in this backfield. So now everyone assumes that Justin Jackson is the leader in this backfield, and we've seen enough instances in the past of that not of you know the last week not necessarily being predictive of what's going to happen moving forward that I'm always a little bit cautious on these spots but thinking about this spot more deeply why am I not on Justin Herbert this week who I love as a quarterback and I love his weapons and I love the matchup well the reason I'm not on Herbert and if you're on Herbert I think he's uh, I think he's got a ton of upside it's just a question of volume so um, Herbert's like on the very fringe of of my player pool and I certainly like him quite a bit. But the reason I'm not on Herbert is because I expect the Chargers to be leaning more heavily on the run. I expect them to have no issues in that area. And so there are enough touches to go around for Kelly and Jackson. Additionally, Jackson played about 65% of the snaps last week. There are reports that the Chargers just aren't really happy with Kelly's development to this point as far as they like him a lot, but he's just not ready to take over a lead role. So Justin Jackson, if he's playing about 60, 65, even 70% of the snaps in this great matchup against the Jaguars in a game where we expect the Chargers to be in the lead, we expect the Chargers to be leaning on the run, we should be able to pencil him in for another, you know, 15 carries and two to five targets. He could easily get up to 17, 18 carries. He he had uh, six targets last week with his 15 carries. So at 4,900, there's a lot to like here. And I I am wondering if he will start to go a little bit overlooked with all of the additional value that's opened up. Certainly, I don't think he's going to come in low-owned, 
but he probably won't be quite as high owned as he would have been originally when he was kind of one of the only value pieces. So that makes me like Justin Jackson even more. I could see putting Jackson on the bottom of build over Geo. What I like about Geo is that we've seen him in this role enough times. We know about the pass game work. Jackson, we don't know if, you know, maybe he comes out and sees only two targets. That's probably not going to happen for Geo. Uh, filling in for Mixon. So you could go either way there in terms of uh, who's the preferable running back in this spot, in this salary range. Very few people will, I would imagine very few people will double pay down at running back. So that's something to think about as well. But uh, Justin Jackson is the kind of standard bottom-up piece here. But the piece that I'm throwing into my game theory build, my build here uh, is Kareem Hunt. So that gives us Four pieces from this game, we have a game flow scenario in which the Browns, we know that the Browns prefer to attack on the ground. The Browns are only going to turn pass heavy if they're falling behind. The Browns are favored in this game. They're the better team. So things set up well for the game scenario we need. We need the Browns to be leading. We need the Browns to be riding Kareem Hunt. We need the Bengals without Joe Mixon to be leaning on the pass and we need Burrow to be doing a good job. And, and all of those elements are actually pretty likely elements. So in the vacuum of just this game, it's pretty unlikely that this block of four players misses. Now, in the macro sense of the slate, we need Burrow to do more than just not miss. We need him to, again, kind of out, outscore those high-priced guys or at least outpace them from a salary standpoint. Uh, in order to really fit on our rosters, but we can feel good about his chances of getting there, and we can feel good that if he gets there, this type of build gets all these guys there. And so, as always, we're looking for ways to give ourselves fewer things to need to get right. So all we really need to get right here is this game flow working out the way it's expected to work out, and Burrow having a good game. If those two things happen, we expose ourselves to all of the touchdowns on the Bengals through Burrow and Geo, or hopefully we expose ourselves to all of the touchdowns through Burrow and Geo. We give ourselves opportunities for double passing touchdowns because Geo can score through the air. Higgins obviously can score through the air. Uh, and then we bring that back with Kareem Hunt, who functions really well in this block and is underpriced for uh, his role in this offense and for the matchup that he has this week. Let's stick then at wide receiver. And I have one piece who doesn't really fit in any sort of game theory uh, elements here. And that is Deontay Johnson. I won't dig into him too deeply here because I, I went pretty deep in the NFL edge. We'll hit on him in the player grid again. But 4,200 Deontay Johnson belongs in the bottom-up build. This gives us an AFC North bottom-up build so far of Burrow, Geo, Hunt, Higgins, and Deontay. Now, the next sharpest piece at wide receiver is Gabriel Davis. We hit on him in the NFL edge. We'll hit on him again in the player grid. But filling in for John Brown this week, the Bills love Gabriel Davis. He's going to step right into the John Brown role. He's played really well so far this year. And the only thing that should hold him back, or that has potential to hold him back, I should say, is the fact that the Bills probably won't have to pass deep into this game. So as Hilo explored in his write-up for this game, there is actually a strong possibility that the, that the Bills do still pass deep into this game. They did it last time they played the Jets. Uh, I like this Bills passing offense quite a bit in this spot. 
And even if they scale back passing as the game moves along, we're still looking at about six to seven targets for Gabriel Davis. If things go really poorly, he's getting about five targets. And he has upside for legitimate upside for eight, nine, ten targets in this offense in this spot. He's 3,600. Again, we'll touch on him in the player grid. But I'm going to go game theory here, and I'm going to build as if I'm trying to win a tournament with 42.9K in salary. And I'm going to go with Marquez Valdez-Scantling and Brandon Cooks as the next two pieces here. Marquez Valdez-Scantling isn't underpriced. We talked earlier about this pricing range that he's in and how that all sort of functions. And again, if he hits a couple times, you know, his price goes up. 700, 800, 1K, but generally speaking, this is the range where he belongs. The type of guy who sees four to eight targets with most of those targets coming really deep downfield, which means if he catches two long bombs and goes for 110 yards and two touchdowns, he's smashing the slate. But if those two passes fall incomplete, he's ending up with like four points and hurting your roster. So MVS isn't isn't a floor piece. He's not a true bottom-up build piece. He's not even a true underpriced piece. But I wanted to put him on this bottom-up build because this gives us an opportunity to get exposure to a shootout that we really like. There's very little to dislike about Packers versus Texans. It's one of those spots where unless Rodgers just doesn't show up, unless Rodgers just has an off day, this game is going to have points scored in it. I said last week with in the in the player grid update on late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, that as I was going through the slate and going game by game, making my notes for my builds, I got to that Titans and Texans game and I wrote, I just don't see a way for points to not be scored in this game. And that was when I started digging in to see, okay, so if I'm that certain the points are going to be scored in this game, there's a narrow distribution of touches. How do I then manage my rosters to make sure that I'm separating myself from the field in the way I build around this game while also making sure I get exposure to this game? And so it's the same sort of setup here. It's hard to see a way, a reasonable way, a predictable way in which this game just falls apart and points just aren't scored. So with that, we want exposure to this game, or at least we want to weigh our exposures on our rosters against the fact that this game exists. We have to know that people are going to be targeting this game. People we're competing against are going to be targeting this game. They're going to be getting points from this game. So we either have to find ways to outmaneuver those rosters or to get points from this game in the best ways possible. And so one of the best ways to get points from this game is to find these guys who can hit for 30 points at lower ownership. So the attention will be on Devontae Adams. The attention, if Aaron Jones misses, will be on Jamal Williams. Jamal Williams, obviously, is a very strong bottom-up build piece as well if Aaron Jones misses this week. But MVS has this big upside, and Brandon Cooks, you know, we're basically looking for ultimately like a back-and-forth type of game where each team is hitting downfield shots and scoring is accelerating and Brandon Cooks would be part of that as well. Obviously, Will Fuller would be part of that as well, but Brandon Cooks at 5,200 is a really solid way to expose yourself to upside. So I said this week that the, I said in the NFL Edge that the the 
My Texans exposure is probably going to be based on Packers exposure, as in I'm rostering this game for the Packers, but I'll probably have enough Packers that I will have plenty of Texans <laughs> because the reason I'm betting on the Packers is not just because they have a good matchup, but because this game should remain competitive throughout or mostly throughout, which means that you know there's extra opportunities for scoring from the Packers. And in order for that to happen, pieces from Houston have to be scoring as well. They have a narrow distribution of touches. We know where they like to go with the ball. So uh, getting a, a Brandon Cooks plus MVS pairing or Brandon Cooks plus Devontae Adams or Brandon Cooks uh, plus Rodgers plus Devontae Adams plus MVS or Will Fuller plus these guys. Different ways you can play it, but it, it, these rosters uh, optimally should work together. These Packers-Texans builds of yours or these Packers builds. So from a bottom-up build standpoint, from a strategy standpoint, from a let's pretend we're trying to win a tournament with this roster <clears throat> type of standpoint, MVS and Brandon Cooks go on here. From a standard bottom-up build standpoint, Gabriel Davis goes on here. Gabriel Davis also, I, I think with how much value has opened up, I think he's not going to be particularly popular. Uh, I haven't looked at ownership projections yet because that's not where I'm at in my process. So you could go look yourself, obviously, and those will, will have a, a clearer sense of what ownership looks like, how it shapes up by Saturday night, Sunday morning. But uh, yeah, I don't imagine that Gabriel Davis will become that popular. And so he's obviously a, you know, a win you a tournament piece as well, as far as a low owned guy with upside. It's not to say that uh, he doesn't belong in that type of build, but I wanted to hit some game theory elements and get MVS and Cooks in here. We'll finish up the bottom-up build at tight end and defense because those are the two spots left. Um, tight end, I'm paying up a little bit and going with Noah Fant at 4,800. I could also go Hunter Henry at 4,500 and feel good about it. And there's some cheap type tight ends with Austin Hooper out and with the Browns emphasizing the tight end recently. The matchup sets up well for tight ends. The problem is... Harrison Bryant's going to be seeing the field as well as uh, David Njoku. So there's no guarantee that you're, there's no guarantee that these guys are heavily involved. In fact, I'd almost expect Bryant to be more heavily involved in the past game, uh, given the way that the Browns have treated Njoku over the years. But uh, there's no guarantee that we know who's going to be involved if one of them is involved. So I think they're viable for tournaments. Obviously, you don't need the savings. So it would just be a strategy play of saying, maybe I get upside down here on a lower-owned guy. Uh, but I don't want to take that risk with how much is available in salary. Noah Fant, we know he's going to be involved. We know that the Broncos are going to have to be throwing against the Chiefs, and we know that they're going to have a hard time throwing to wide receivers. So Noah Fant sets up well. He has target counts on the year of 6, 5, 10, and 6. Yardage totals of 81, 57, 46, and 35, and then obviously a couple touchdowns scored. Uh, Hunter Henry is kind of in the same range. Target counts of 8, 8, 7, 4, 8. Yardage totals of 73, 83, 50, 39, and 23. One touchdown scored. Uh, again, the only concern with Henry is that the Chargers might be able to take their foot off the gas a little bit earlier in this one, but he should still get to five, six, seven targets, no problem. He has upside for another eight or nine targets. So I'm fine with either of those guys. Henry has the better matchup. 
Fant is probably the slightly better player, but you could go either way there. 4,500, 4,800. And then at defense, this will be obvious and chalky and popular, I believe, but the Washington football team with a strong offensive line against the Cowboys kind of injury wrecked line. Andy Dalton didn't look like a great fit in his first game here. Now, that's not to say that that can't improve from one week to the next, but this is still another, you know, below average spot. And Washington is at home. They're only 2,500. I'll note that eight of their 16 sacks came in game one, but seven interceptions on the year, sixth in DVOA against the pass. Uh, Obviously a very stout front four that will be attacking Andy Dalton in this spot. So plenty to like with the Washington football team on defense. I do think the defense is a spot this week where you could maybe try to differentiate from the field just because there are a lot of places where the field is going to overlap on sharp plays. Again, we'll have a better sense once ownership, once we hit Saturday night of really how ownership is shaping up and where the value is in terms of low owned with upside. But I do think that a lot of these sharp plays are going to have ownership on them. So one of the ways to try to differentiate from the field is to say, okay, let me take this high variance or higher variance position of defense and go a different direction in the field. So look for an attacking defense, a defense that can potentially create turnovers, that can potentially get sacks, and might come with low ownership. But from a strict bottom-up build perspective, Washington is the piece here. That gives us a final game theory roster, winning a first place in tournaments roster, of Burrow, Bernard, Hunt, Higgins, Deontay Johnson, Marquez Valdez, Scantling, Noah Fant, Brandon Cooks, and the Washington football team, defense. That brings us to some angles. And I have one, two, three, four, five things written down that I want to hit on here. So these are not just MME angles, not just mass multi-entry or large tournament field angles. These are angles that can be played probably not in single entry, but in three entry max uh, or in mini multi-entry, like the approach that I've been taking with kind of these 14 to 19 rosters designed to work as a roster block together. These are tournament angles that could potentially give you an edge on the field. These are obviously spots that are not as highly likely to hit. And that's why they'll go a little bit overlooked, but that also there's spots that can hit hard if they do hit. And that creates that advantage on the field. If they're lower owned because people are looking for certainty or looking too heavily for certainty, and we can embrace a little bit of uncertainty for some upside, then that can give us an edge in tournaments. So the first thing that I want to mention, the first of these five angles, is, and this isn't really a build around idea, but I just wanted to note there was so much to like you don't necessarily have to go off the board to get separators. So if somebody like Gabriel Davis or Deontay Johnson, who who are really sharp plays, if they're going low owned, you can get your separators that way. This is a really good week. You know, I, I say this because my process doesn't always include ownership projections to begin with. This is a really good week to lean on 
ownership projections. And so what I would recommend is getting your pool of players that you like, your pool of players that you think can win you a tournament, and then as you kind of get closer to your builds, look at ownership projections and look for the pieces that are projected to be lower owned and are still in your pool. Look for the pieces where you're kind of close on a couple players and one player is projected at 20% owned and one player is projected at 5 or 6% owned. Look for those places where you can gain an actual advantage by just taking a good play that other people aren't on. There's, there's enough to like this week and the DFS community is groupthink driven enough that there's still going to be chalk congregating on plays that aren't appreciably better than other far lower owned plays. So that's the first note on this week is you're looking for separators, you're looking for scores that can win you a tournament, but you don't necessarily have to take, I mean, this is always the case, but especially on a week like this, you don't necessarily have to take a play that's suboptimal against the chalk just to get some lower ownership. This is the type of week where there are going to be plenty of good plays that go low owned just because there's plenty of good plays and chalk still chalk still develops uh, by the end of the week in the DFS community. And, and so that gives us an advantage if we're looking for those lower owned good plays. The next one I want to mention is Latavius Murray. And one of the things that is valuable, you see Zandemir do it in his showdown write-ups. Uh, all the random questions that Cubs fan comes to me with about players that I'm not even thinking of is also based on this type of thinking, is thinking about a game and then thinking about you know the fact that there's still going to be 60-plus plays on both sides of the ball, and there's still going to be targets, there's still going to be touches. Who are the plays that people just aren't, aren't thinking of, right? Who are the plays who are going to be involved in their offense and people just aren't thinking of them? So people are going to be thinking of Latavius Murray, but I'm using that as the lead-in here because when you start thinking about how the Saints are going to try to move the ball, the Panthers have been excellent. Again, And in case you've missed news, Michael Thomas is out. Emmanuel Sanders is out. So for the Saints to move the ball... It's not just, okay, they throw to Traquan Smith a bunch, and Traquan Smith could go in the bottom-up build as well. I think that I'll have him as the standard piece instead of Brandon Cooks because he's cheaper and um, he's going to be the alpha receiver for the Saints. But what does alpha receiver mean? Sean Payton isn't tied to any one approach on offense. Against a Panthers defense that's zone-heavy has been really tough on wide receivers. It shouldn't surprise us if Peyton A mixes and matches pieces that nobody's thinking of. You know, two targets here to this guy, three targets there to this guy on, you know, all sorts of creative play designs to just keep the Panthers off balance and keep moving up field. This kind of reminds me of the Saints and Packers game earlier this season when Michael Thomas and Devontae Adams were out. And Corey, in his betting slant, wrote up that he really liked the over. And I asked him about it because it was like, all these pieces are missing and the over-under was still set at like 58 or something absurd. And it was just like, in his mind, it was just a thing of, 
looking past the numbers to say these both these teams know how to score points. Both these coaching staffs and quarterbacks are going to be able to figure out a way to maneuver up the field and score points. So I talk about I talked about it this week in the NFL Edge that the NFL is a game of inches, and I said it's it's a cliche because it's true. You watch enough games and you see that these little you know little errors, little mental mistakes, uh, a pass is just you know a half foot off from where it should be, a player reacting just a moment too slow. These are the differences in a game. And when you have a quarterback like Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady or Drew Brees, those little things tend to go right far more often. They're going to convert on third down more often because their their mindset is so sharp. You know, you watch Carson Wentz on Thursday night football chucking passes into the end zone while he's getting sacked and trying to flip the ball to somebody as he's going down and like all these YOLO plays as if it's the last play of the game. And then you watch Brady on like a third and 11 with a screen play called and the screen gets blown up and he just throws the ball into the dirt. It's like, okay, we'll punt and we'll come back. You know, like you start processing the fact that you're trying to win this game. You're not trying to maximize every drive. You're not trying to maximize every play. And so these guys understand what it takes to move down the field and score touchdowns. They understand that you have to get into third and manageable, and then you have to convert third downs. And so a team like the Saints, they don't come out in a game like this and just say, all right, let's put in Traquan Smith and let him run you know, Michael Thomas's routes and, and Emmanuel Sanders' routes and give him 12 targets. And that might end up happening. It might very well end up happening. But it's likelier that the Saints say, how do we keep this team off balance? How do we keep getting to third and short, keep converting on third downs and keep moving down the field? And it it just wouldn't surprise me if Kamara and Latavius are on the field together a little bit more in this one with Kamara maybe running some, some snaps out of the slot. And it wouldn't surprise me if Latavius gets 15 carries. 16 carries, 18 carries in this spot. So he's a bit of a higher risk play, especially with how much value has opened up. But with how much value has opened up, he's likelier to go overlooked. So I don't have my exposures nailed down, but it wouldn't surprise me if I end up with something like 8 out of 19 Camaro rosters or 9 out of 19 Camaro rosters, and then 3 or 4 Latavius Murray hedge rosters off of that. So Latavius Murray is an interesting angle to play. He's become more interesting with this other value opening up because it's now less likely that people will move to him. He feels like he feels like a thinner play than Justin Jackson or than Gio Bernard because he's not the lead back. But again, we could still see him getting close to as many touches as these other guys and in a really good offense in a really good spot against a Panthers defense that can be hit on the ground. That brings us to our third angle, which is the Panthers passing attack. And it's just worth remembering that narrow distributions of touches are really valuable. The uh, Saints have a an above average defense. They have a really good defensive line, but they're really tough against the run. And ultimately, we expect them to score points on offense. And we know that when the Panthers pass, they're throwing to DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson and Mike Davis. But DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson having the most upside in this spot. 
And so I just want to mention that that Panthers passing attack is one that on paper it doesn't pop. But we know that the targets are going to be concentrated. We know that there is upside. And because it doesn't pop, ownership will likely be low this week. So Robbie Anderson, DJ Moore are both guys to consider in tournament builds. And what, what I ultimately like to do is I like to get my foundation pieces, the pieces that I feel really good about, figure out how I'm going to mix and match those across my rosters, and then look for pieces that could win me a tournament, pieces that don't necessarily pop in the research, but because of that are going to be lower owned and still have a shot at 30 plus points. So Robbie Anderson's on my list for that right now. Tyree Kill is on my list for that right now. Marquez Valdez-Scantling is on my list for that right now. DJ Chark is on my list for that right now. And so those are the types of plays who, you know, I, I build in my in my notebook and I kind of figure out where my core is. So I've talked about that recently. You know, one week it might be, okay, I feel really certain about these running backs. Another week it might be, I feel really certain about these couple stacks. Uh, last week it was the Tennessee offense and the Minnesota offense and how I was building around those. And I kind of get a feel for the foundation of my 19 rosters. Then I start pulling in those pieces that are, you know, either from other rosters where it's like, okay, I've got six of this stack on, you know, over here. And so I want to get a couple of these pieces from the stack on some other rosters, or um, here's my, you know, running back certainty or how I'm mixing and matching different things. And then I usually have anywhere, excuse me, from uh, two to three to sometimes four spots left on these rosters. And that's where I want to start just throwing in these upside pieces, the guys who I can say, okay, the floor on my roster is is pretty set. I still have ceiling with the floor, with the foundation I've built. And now let me not worry about floor on these remaining pieces and just target ceiling. Let me try to find these guys who can get me 30 plus points that other people aren't necessarily on. And so uh, Robbie Anderson's on that list this week. You could throw DJ Moore on that list the Panthers passing attack is just interesting from an angles perspective of people just not being on them. Last two, one is the Burrow build idea, and we covered that pretty heavily above as far as the ins and outs on that one and, and why it's valuable and how it's valuable and what needs to happen for it to work out. So we won't go any deeper into that one here. And then the last one is a Ryan Tannehill build. And I won't go any deeper into it right now because we hit on it in the NFL edge about why it's viable and how it could work. This one would be for large field tournaments only for me. And the question that I would ask is, can Tannehill score the top score on the slate at quarterback? Because in order to be worth the risk against the stout Pittsburgh defense, the answer to that question has to be yes. And my answer is I'm not so sure, which is why he's mass multi-entry only for me. And he's more like if I built 75 plus rosters, I would have a little bit of exposure to Ryan Tannehill and this Tennessee passing attack. But uh, he certainly can post the top score on the slate. They are the number two ranked DVOA pass offense. They've been tremendous uh, since Tannehill took over, really. And it's it's not fluky. Everybody's waiting kind of for the um, carriage to turn into a pumpkin. 
there you go. Cinderella reference there. But the, you know, if you watch the tape and if you kind of break down what this Titans offense is doing, Tannehill is like a legitimate MVP candidate. Right now, the MVP candidates are Russ, uh, Josh Allen's kind of falling back, but uh, Russ, Josh Allen, Kyler, and Tannehill. Tannehill's right there in the mix. He's having an excellent season again. So again, we know how tough the Pittsburgh defense is. That's a given. But we also, as we talked about, we know that the Titans are really good at preventing sacks. We know that that's largely what makes the Steelers' defense so good. Their secondary is not, is I won't say not talent-rich. They are talent-rich, but they're aging outside of Minka Fitzpatrick, and they rely more on their intelligence, their savvy, their communication than on their skill. So with a great pass rush, that works really well. But if the pass rush doesn't get there, there are opportunities for the secondary to be exploited. Also noted in the NFL edge that Devin Bush is now out for the Steelers. That's a big loss in the middle of the field for the Steelers uh, in coverage, especially. And so, uh, yeah, there's just there are elements here where the Titans passing attack, which will go totally overlooked, could end up having one of the better games on the slate. In order to take on the risk myself, I would want to feel like they pretty clearly could score the top score on the slate, and that's still tough to see against this really good Pittsburgh defense. But I don't think it's completely off the table. I think that there's probably a 3-4% chance that Tannehill could post the top score on the slate, bring A.J. Brown up with him, and I think that we'll probably get 3% or lower on ownership on Tannehill. And so, uh, yeah, it's just an interesting angle to play, an interesting... Um, position to mess around with on on larger field builds with that i am going to get out of here we still have uh, at this point i still have the bucks and raiders game to write up because we weren't sure if that game was going to end up being played it now looks like it will be so that is one of the uh, ugliest games on the weekend for dfs but still deserves and requires a write-up so uh, i'm going to get to that and then I'll get to the player grid overnight. It'll be up on Saturday morning, hopefully around 9 a.m. on the East Coast. And I will then see you. Actually, I'll see you on the OWS chat pod as well. But I'll see you on the site throughout the day. I will be updating the player grid overnight, Saturday night, probably around 5 or 6 in the morning, Sunday morning on the West Coast. And uh, I will see you there. And then I'll see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend. Thanks for hanging out.